Welcome to the King's Cast, dynamic teaching recorded live at King's Church in Cambridge, England. We hope you are blessed and challenged by listening to the ministry today. And now, here's the broadcast. Well, it's great to be here in the morning. Uh, we've been coming to the church for a year. So if you don't know us, we're the afternoon gang. And it's so good to see you all here this morning, and uh, it's very nice to be here. Um, I, uh, Phil, by the way, is up in Yorkshire. He's uh, in Hope Church in Rotherham. I've had a bit of Facebook chat with him this morning, and he's doing absolutely fine. So uh, <laughs> he's been praying for you and for this meeting as well. So it's really good to be here today. Now, how many of you have ever been camping? I've slept under canvas. Just a few campers, all right. A few happy campers, right? I did a lot of camping. My, uh, my dad took me camping. I went camping with scouts at school. I went camping, uh, doing outdoor pursuits when I was a teenager, going up mountains and things like that and carrying the tent on my back. Uh, I went camping with Diane. I went camping... Uh, uh, to Bible camps, family camps, you know those things where your Christians get together and you have a fantastic time. We've done lots of that as well. So we've done lots of camping in our life. And it may surprise you to know that I have an old tent. It's over 70 years old. It was made just two years after the Second World War. So there you are. Uh, And... uh, It's getting a bit frayed around the edges, but I'm very attached to this tent. Surprisingly, they still make the same model. And, in fact, they only ever made two models. And Diane owns the other model. (laughs) Her model, her tent, is a bit younger than mine. And... (laughs) And uh, actually, I say it's Diane's tent, but actually a few years ago, we agreed to jointly share ownership of our tents. So we both own our tents. And if you don't know what I'm talking about yet, (laughs) I will tell you that we both sleep in our tents every night, and we pitch them very close to each other. (laughs) Can we have the first slide, please? Next one. For we know that our earthly tent we live in is destroyed. We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. My tent is my body. Here it is before you. And I'm afraid it, all the things I've said about it are true. It is, it is frayed at the edges and, <laughs> and everything else. But I'm also very attached to it. Yeah, there we are. <laughs> now, in fact, you are all campers. So you've all been camping. You've been camping all your life. Now, Paul wrote this. He said he described his body as a tent. Now, he was a tent maker, wasn't he? You know that Paul had a trade as a tent maker, so he was very into tents, and he knew all about tents, and so he was using this as an illustration. Peter also uses the illustration. Next slide, please. 
this is talking towards the end of his life. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So he was just wanting to share the things he'd learned about Jesus with people before he died. And he described his body as a tent. In fact, Peter and Paul both thought of their bodies as tents. Uh, They knew they were not going to last forever, but they knew exactly what their tent was for. Their tent was for serving God and for sharing the good news of Jesus in this world. That's what their tent was for. And um, perhaps you could all stand up a moment. And all, because when you stand up, you're a bit more aware of your tent. All right, so just have a quick look at your tent. Okay. Probably a bit younger than mine. Okay. <laughs> and <laughs> let's say together, this is my tent, all together. This is my tent. And again, this is my tent. Now, our job here is not just to survive in our tents, our bodies, but it's to see the kingdom of God come using our bodies. And that's the purpose of your body and the purpose of your tent. And that's why you need to look after your tent very, very carefully all those years. Now, I've got a couple of verses for your encouragement. And the first verse is one that uh, spoke to me because I was thinking about my body being a tent. And then I read this in Psalm 91. Listen to this one. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High your dwelling... No harm will overtake you, and no disaster will come near your tent. I thought, that's good, isn't it? No disaster will come near my tent. In fact, that word disaster in other versions, like ESV, is plague or illness or that as well, as well as disaster. So it's a good promise, isn't it, that one? And I've got another one as well while we're just thinking about this. This is Romans 8:11, which is about your bodies. It doesn't include the word tent. And it says that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. So the Holy Spirit in you will give life to your mortal body and will give strength to your tent and enable you to live a life for God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Good. That's great. Uh, You can sit down now. (coughs) We're going to pick up on that a little bit later on, all right? So you'll be standing up again a bit later. Now, camping's quite a big thing in the Bible. I don't know if you thought about that. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all campers. They lived in tents. They walked around the land of Canaan. In fact, they only owned one field with a cave-in, which they used as a burial site. Otherwise, they just wandered around in tents. And by the time you get to Jacob, remember he had seven, a family of 70 when they eventually moved to Egypt. And uh, he went with his children and his grandchildren, and they moved presumably with their tents. I actually think that when they were in Egypt, they lived in tents all the time. Because when they came out, They lived in tents in the desert, and they didn't have recreational tents in the loft in those days. (laughs) They must have lived in them and used them, and they went to the desert later on. 
So they, were in, they went to Egypt, 70 people, if you remember, and they were there 400 years. And after 400 years, that 70 had increased to round about 2 million. Now you can get that because there were 600,000 fighting men. So you can calculate that there must have been about probably 2 million people with women and children and families and everything else. So there are a huge number of Israelites. And these, of course, eventually came out of Egypt. And there was the Passover. I'm not going to go into all the details today. You know, a lot of you will know the details. There's a Passover, which was on the evening of the 14th of the first month. And they came out on the 15th, the next day. And they came out of Egypt. It was the Exodus. And they went across the Red Sea, miraculously. They went into the desert of Sin. It's only called that. It's not actually a sinful place. They went into the desert of Sin. And there God provided them with carbohydrates, the manna, protein, quail, and water from a rock. So that's what they did next. And then they moved on. And unfortunately, they had their first battle with the Amalekites. And they won, and Joshua appears in the story at that point. And then they went on, and they came uh, to, uh, after the fight with the Amalekites, Jethro visited them, who was Moses' father-in-law. And he gave Moses some advice about delegating, because Moses was trying to do everything himself. Anybody a leader like that, who tries to do everything themselves? (laughs) Anyway, so Moses... Uh, So Jethro gave him some very good advice about delegation. And then they came to the mountain of God, Sinai. Now we are only about two and a half months after leaving Egypt when they arrive at Sinai. And the next three months is God revealing himself to these Israelites in a mighty way. And there are various encounters over the next three months or so. The first thing that happened was that uh, smoke and fire appeared on the mountain and there was a sound of a trumpet. And God spoke from the fire. Now, this is not the first time that God spoke from a fire on Mount Sinai. Do you remember another place? The burning bush? Perhaps. (laughs) It's the same place. (laughs) So this God spoke to Moses from the fire and the burning bush, and he now spoke from a volcanic sort of fire. It was like more like a volcano was this. And God spoke. And he spoke the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. He spoke them out. I am the Lord your God. And he spoke them out to the people. And then Moses, the, the people were petrified. They were very, very scared about this. So they asked Moses to go and see God. (laughs) So Moses went and spoke to God, and God gave him a set of laws, which are two or three chapters in Exodus, which are called the Book of the Covenant, which is a a set of laws. And uh, this set of laws, Moses wrote down. It says he wrote it down. And then he brought it to the people, and he said... People, (laughs) will you keep these laws? And the people said, yes, we will keep these laws. 
They weren't very good at keeping laws, actually. But they said, yes, we will keep these laws. And there was a covenant-making ceremony where they made this covenant with the book of the covenant, which was there. And they also had the Ten Commandments. Then Moses went up to the mountain. We haven't got there yet. So he goes up there. There's 40 days and 40 nights, which you are probably familiar with. And, he, and, the, and when he went to the mountain, he got, had two tablets of stone, which he cut out, and God wrote the Ten Commandments with his finger on the tablets of stone. All right? That's what happened next. He wrote the tablets of stone. And Moses had the tablets of stone. Now, God gave Moses something else on the mountain in those 40 days and 40 nights. He did not only give him two tablets of stone, he gave him something else. Anybody know what else God gave to Moses on the mountain? Uh, that came the second time round. Anything else? It's a very important thing. It's a very important thing. I'll tell you what it is. It was the design of a tent. <laughs> it was the design of a tent. And this tent, God, didn't, God gave him very detailed design. He gave him the dimensions of the tent. He gave him the materials of the tent. He gave him the contents of the tent. He gave him even the names of the artist people who were going to design certain parts of the tent. And he told him how to use the tent. So all of that happened. Moses, so this was all in Moses' head, I think, at this stage, because he probably didn't have a pen and paper with him. (laughs) So he, he he had this in his head. He had the design of this tent, which is called the tabernacle sometime, in his head. And he had the tablets of stone. And he came down the mountain. And the people were worshipping a golden calf. They'd got tired of Moses being away. They wondered where he got to, and so they started worshipping an idol that they made from gold. And Moses was so furious that he threw the tablets of stone down on the ground and broke them. And then he had to sort out the people. He destroyed the golden calf. (coughs) He... um, sorted out the people, and there were certain punishments for the people. And then, poor old Moses went up again to the mountain for another 40 days and 40 nights. You read about it, is there? For another 40 days and 40 nights. And he got two more tablets of stone, and God wrote, you know, you've seen it in the the films, haven't you? Anyway, he wrote wrote on on the tablets of stone again the... The words, the Ten Commandments again on the stone. And this time, you are right. This time, he had a fantastic encounter with God. In fact, God swept past him uh, and he he actually had an amazing encounter with God. So much so that when he came down from the mountain, his face was shining. And Pastor Phil spoke to us about that a few weeks ago. So that was an amazing time he came down. So this was the delivery of the law and the Ten Commandments and the design of this tent to these people. We are now about six months on from leaving Egypt. 
The next six months were spent making the tent. Tent making. (laughs) So the people of Israel spent about the next six months making this amazing tent. Just in time, actually, for they finished it and they put it up at the end of the, the beginning of the first month in the second year. And by the 14th of the month, they were able to have the first Passover. So they were just in time for the first Passover. But this tent, I'll tell you a bit about it. It had a, a courtyard, which was not covered. In the courtyard, was a, what the things were bronze. There was a bronze altar, which was used for sacrificing animals. There was a bronze water bowl that was used for washing hands. That was what was in there. And then there was actually the tent itself. The tent itself, you might know, had two parts to it. It had a holy place and a most holy place. And everything in that tent was gold. It was either solid gold or it was wood covered with gold. And in the first part, the holy place, there was a table, a gold table, which had some bread loaves on it. The other side, there was a candlestick, a gold candlestick. Well, uh, probably burnt oil, actually, but it was a light. And then there was an incense altar. So those were in the first section. And then in the next section, which was the most holy place, there was the Ark of the Covenant, which was a box. And it, <laughs> it was a box. It was mainly made, the bottom part was made of wood covered with gold. And the lid was made of solid gold. And inside this box were the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments written on them and a few other things, and I'm not going to go into the details today. So that was the, the, what, it, what it was. The question is, what was it for? <laughs> Why did they make this big thing? Well, it was a portable temple. That's what it was. In fact, you could, I think there's a slide up that says that's right. It, it was a, a portable temple, and it was a tent that they could pack up and move on to the next place. But it wasn't a temple like you think, because you might think, what went on in this temple? Well, you, you, you'd think, well, people go to the temple and they worship God, a bit like this, you know, and you praise God and things like that. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. It was awful. They, they mainly burnt animals. That's mainly what it was about, the burning of animals on a bronze altar, which is what the main business of this temple was. So that's, that was one thing. It was a place of sacrifice, offering and sacrifice. That was one thing that went on. And the other, play, other thing about it was it was a place where they met God. They felt God was there in this place. And in fact, they pitched it in the middle of the camp, the Levites and the priests were next outside there, and then the rest of the tribes of Israel were outside there. But basically, it was sort of God in the middle of the camp sort of feel to it. So that's what it was for. Now, the, I'll tell you a bit about the sacrifices, because uh, there, were, there are a number of kinds of offerings and sacrifices. It's very complicated. I, I remember when I first became a Christian, I was reading a Bible scheme, and uh, I sat down in my room in the college in Cambridge, and somebody gave me this scripture, search the scripture thing, which was sort of reading scheme for reading the Bible. 
And I started as a new Christian reading Leviticus. Well, if you were not going to choose <laughs> a section of the Bible for a new Christian to read, that is what you would not choose. All right? So this is, it was, it was, it was very, very difficult. I right? think trying to get to grips with it. And it was a rather academic book with this explanation explaining all the... Anyway, there we are. But over the years, I've come to love Leviticus. <laughs> yes. So it is not my enemy anymore. It is my friend. But... Leviticus has, it, it explains what these various sacrifices are. There are three main kinds of sacrifices, which might just make it simpler for you. The first one was the sin and guilt offering. Now, these were offerings, if you think you'd sinned, if you thought you'd sinned against God or sinned against somebody else, then you could take this offering to the, 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 the tabernacle, and the priest would burn it, and the priest would eat part of it, actually, and the, the blood would be sprinkled against the altar. That's what would happen there. And, and occasionally, for certain ones, the blood would be taken into the holy place. And once a year, the blood was taken into the most holy place, into the very presence of where sort of God was the, on the Ark of the Covenant. So that was the first kind, for guilt and sin. So it was basically saying, I'm sorry for my sin, Lord, please forgive me. The second one... Uh, was a, a whole burnt offering. Here the whole animal was brought and it was all burnt up. It was like giving everything to God. Here I am, God, I give everything to you. There was an aspect of atonement in that as well for those who are theologians here. Anyway, but basically it was, it was also one of those, it was a burnt whole, I give, I give you everything, God. And the third kind of sacrifice was a fellowship offering which is where you took your sacrifice and you wanted just to be friends with God. So the, the animal was sacrificed, it was cooked, and you ate part of it, and the idea was that sort of God ate the other half, and basically you had a meal in his presence, eating part of the sacrifice yourself. So that was the fellowship offering. So that was a, another kind of offering which was there. Uh, so those are the offerings. And the other thing about it, there were the offerings... And then there was also the fact it was where the presence of God was. And when they put up the tabernacle, God came and filled it. And the most holy place became very bright with light. And above the tabernacle, there was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. We look at the next verse on here and uh, see a quick summary. When the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of Israelites, when the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. <clears throat> so this was God with us. God in our midst, traveling with us, being with us. That's what the other thing was. We are going somewhere with this story, by the way. <laughs> so that was, that was that tent in the desert. Now, of course, they went 40 years around the desert, and then eventually they went into the promised land, uh, and they parked this tent in a place called Shiloh. And it was there for quite a long time, a few hundred years. And 
It was there during the time of Joshua and the judges. And uh, if you remember Samuel, who was the, really the last judge, he met God there. Remember that? God spoke to him, Samuel, Samuel, in the night. That was at Shiloh. And it was at this tabernacle at Shiloh. So that's where that, that's where that happened. And then, uh, just after Samuel, the next leaders of Israel were the first three kings. I'm giving you a bit of history today. You should know these stories. There's, <laughs> it was Saul, the first king, David, the second king, and Solomon, the third king. Now, during the times of Saul and David, these tabernacles got moved around a bit. It all got moved around, shifted around a bit. And David actually added something else to the whole thing. He added music and worship and praise because he was a musician. Remember that? He used to play the harp and he wrote all the psalms. And all that. So he added quite a lot of that to, the, to the, what happened in that tabernacle. But basically, that's what happened then. And then when Solomon came, he built a permanent structure in Jerusalem, a temple, designed by David, which he actually built, and it was a beefed-up version of the tabernacle. It was a big, permanent version of it. So it was not a portable one anymore. And he built that in Jerusalem, and he put the Ark of the Covenant in the Most Holy Place. And the Most Holy Place was very interesting because it was a cube. (laughs) It was was a cube. It was... was, uh, about uh, 10 meters by 10 meters by 10 meters. And it, it was lined with gold, the whole thing. It was all gold. And the Ark of the Covenant was also gold, and that was put in. And when the glory of the Lord filled that place, you could imagine the reflections and everything else came. It's ever so bright, ever so bright now, as the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, that was the Temple of Solomon. That temple lasted for about 400 years until it was destroyed by the Babylonians who came in. And they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, and the Ark of the Covenant was lost forever. And if you wonder where it is, you need to ask. Indiana Jones, <laughs> those who are aware of such things. Anyway, but basically the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was lost forever. And then they were, the Israelites were in, were in Babylon for 70 years. And then they came back to Israel. They were now called Jews because they were mainly from the tribe of Judah. Little snippets for you, you see. <laughs> they were mainly from the tribe of Judah, so they were now called Jews. And they built another temple, a smaller temple, uh, in Jerusalem. And this small temple was developed over the next 500 years until Jesus. Now, when Jesus was around, there was a magnificent temple built by Herod the Great. It was a developed thing from that early one. And this was an amazing temple. It was, it was made of marble and polished stone. It was an amazing thing. It was started about 20 years before Jesus was born. It was finished about 30 years after Jesus died in A.D. 64. And then it was completely destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. Six years later, <laughs> so that's what happened to it. 
So that was the temple that Jesus went into. Now this temple was a very interesting temple because it was magnificent. There were lots of priests and scribes and sacrifices going on and all sorts of things going around in there. And there was also a most holy place. But if you went and looked inside the most holy place, you'd find it was empty. There was no Ark of the Covenant in there. And this whole temple was a picture of empty religion. And Jesus spent much time denouncing empty religion. He told the Pharisees that you're, you, know, you just do things and go through motions and everything else, but you're, you're, it's dead. There's no life there. And this temple was a, a visual aid of the dead religion of the Pharisees at that time. It was an empty temple. God, God was not there. It was just an empty shell. And do you know that empty religion is around today? A church can be empty of God. It doesn't matter either it's a traditional church, an evangelical church, a charismatic church, a Pentecostal church. It can be empty because God is not there. And they've got programs and things happening and lots of things happening around the place, but God is not in it. And by the way, the same applies to you. (laughs) You can be empty. Because you may go through the motions, you may come to church every Sunday and you may be doing religious things, but you may be empty. God is not there. Right? So this was an illustration. And the problem is that the gravitational direction is downwards to emptiness. That's the way it happens if you do not watch yourself. If you do not watch, you go downhill and you become just empty. And that's why we need to defy gravity and make sure that verse we had earlier on about being filled with the Holy Spirit and that God will give life to our mortal bodies because we are filled with the Holy Spirit. So we need to beware of being an empty temple. It was empty, but one day a young couple brought a baby into the temple. And there was an old man called Simeon who'd been there for years praying. And he'd been told by God that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Christ. That's what he was told. And he was waiting to see the Lord's Christ. And one day he was led by the Spirit into the temple and he went in there and his lights went on. <laughs> he thought, ah, <laughs> something's happening today. <laughs> and he, he found uh, Joseph and Mary and he saw the little baby and he took the baby into his arms and he said, all you good Catholics and Anglicans will know these words, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all people to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel you know that one 
<laughs> so that is, that is uh, th- that's what he found. You see, God had come in. When Jesus came into the temple as a baby, God had arrived. It wasn't an empty temple at the moment. And then when he came as a 12-year-old boy, God was in the temple again. And when he came as an adult, God was in the temple again. So he was in the temple. Now you might remember this incident. I think the next slide is about this. That's right. This is when Jesus, this is actually in John's gospel. There are two two accounts of Jesus clearing the temple. One is at the beginning of his ministry, which is in John's gospel. The other accounts are at the end of his ministry, which are in the other three gospels. So this is the one in John's gospel. And in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Okay? So that's what he said. So he recognized that God wasn't there, but the God of that temple was money, wasn't it? Right? It had become a, a marketplace. Money was the main moving thing in that temple. And then they asked him, they said, why are, you, why are you doing this? Who gave you authority to do all of this? Next slide, please. And the Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 40 years, 46 years, to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken was, was his body. Now this was a game changer. Because he was saying, this place isn't the real temple anymore. This building isn't the temple. My body is now the temple. That's what Jesus was saying. His body was now the temple. Because he said, to destroy my body and I'll raise it again in three days. So he was basically, that had changed, hadn't it? There was a new portable temple around. And it was Jesus. He was the new tabernacle. He was the new portable temple around the place. And what happens in portable temples? It's a place of sacrifice. And it's a place of the presence of God, where God is. And Jesus fulfilled both of these. His temple was a place of sacrifice. He was the perfect sacrifice, the perfect sin and guilt offering for the sins of the whole world. It was, it was different. And in fact, he was, he was not just the sacrifice, he was also the high priest of the sacrifice. And he carried his own blood into the most holy place. See, when Jesus died on the cross, 
a, a remarkable thing happened. Remember the, the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Well, actually, that was only symbolic because there was no Ark of the Covenant in the temple. But it was symbolic. And the symbolism was to do with Jesus going in to the most holy place in heaven. There's a wonderful verse, which is in Hebrews. We'll have the next one. Uh, Next one, please. Next next slide, please. We'll miss that one. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. So this is a picture of him being the sacrifice, his body being given, his blood being shed, and then him carrying the blood in the heavenly tabernacle through to the most holy place to God himself and saying to his father, this is my blood shed for the sins of the world. Shed for Ida and for Diane and for Danga and for Jean-Louis for Naquanda, for Sarah, or you lot. (laughs) (laughs) He said, I, this is my blood given for the sins of the world. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Because he died for your sin and for my sin as he died on the cross. He was the ultimate sacrifice. In actual fact, it tells us in the Bible that the old Testament ones were only shadows, only pictures. They weren't the real one. Jesus was the real one. He was the real sacrifice. They didn't really do it properly. They were looking forward to the true sacrifice of Jesus as he died on the cross to take our sins and as he bore his blood before his father. So he was the perfect sacrifice and he was also the place where people found God, wasn't he? They came to him to find God. That's when they met Jesus, they found God. He was there. They knew that. He was different from the other scribes and the Pharisees and other teachers. He was, he was alive with the power of God. So they knew that he was something different. And that's because God was there. He was the temple. It was a place of sacrifice. And it was the place where God could be found. Now, when I was 18, I started here at university. Uh, I did science degree. And in my first week, I was, something happened to me which was the most significant thing that's ever happened in my life. I was invited to a sermon at Holy Trinity Church on a Sunday night. Now, Holy Trinity Church in the middle of town, it's between Marks and Spencers and Marks and Spencers. You can find it <laughs> Basically, you can find it in the middle of town. And uh, basically, it was there that I went, to this, I went to this meeting in Holy Trinity, in the midst of Marks and Spencers. But anyway, so that was it. So I went there. And the man there preached the gospel to me. He told me how I could become a Christian. 
He said <coughs> that I needed to repent of my sin. I needed to turn away from my sin. I needed to apologize to God for the things I'd done wrong in my life and turn to him. He explained that I needed to believe in Jesus because he was the perfect sacrifice for my sin. I needed to put my trust in Jesus as my saviour. And he also explained I needed to ask Jesus to come into my life. He explained this in a very good way. He said, your life is like a house with many rooms. And you need to ask Jesus Christ to come in to your house, to all the rooms in your house, and to be in, in everywhere in your life. So that night... I knelt down. I know where the seat is. Well, it, I think they've shifted it around now, actually. It's not like it used to be. But anyway, it, it, basically, I know about where it was in the building. I know it was probably about 9 o'clock at night. But I knelt down. And I said, I apologize to God for my sin. I asked him to forgive me. I put my trust in Jesus as my Savior and asked him to take my sin away and forgive me. And I asked him to come into my life. Now, that was the most important moment of my life. It was the defining moment of my life. I didn't feel a great deal, but it was the time when I became a Christian, when I was born again, when I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. It was the most important time in my life on the 10th of October, 1960. <laughs> a long time ago. I told him got an old tent. Anyway, but basically, it was a long time ago. But that's when I asked Jesus Christ to come into my life as my Savior. And that's the most important thing that I've done in my life. And it defined the whole of my life, the whole direction of my life. Now, I should think many people in this room can say a sim- give a similar story. I think many people can give a similar story about their lives. But this morning, there might be one or two people who have not yet done that. You have not yet apologized to God for your sin. You have not yet put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and thanked him for dying on the cross for you. And you may not have asked him to come into your life. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you an opportunity just now. This could be your day. The 24th of June, 2018, a beautiful midsummer day, could be the day when you come to Jesus and you are born again. So I'm going to give you the opportunity. It will be quite short, the opportunity. But I'm going to ask everybody else to just bow their heads for a moment, as we do here very often, okay? Just so that it's private. And if you're here today and you've never asked Jesus, to come into your life. You've never repented of your sin, and you've never put your trust in Jesus as your Savior. You can just raise your hand now, and I will just make a note of that. I'm not going to embarrass you in any other way, but if you just raise your hand, if you want to do that today, please just raise your hand wherever you are. Thank you. Thank you. Just raise your hand wherever you are. Thank you. I've seen it. I've seen seen both those. Thank you. Anybody else? Today is a day. It says in the Bible that today is a day of salvation. And you need to take the opportunity when it arises. So this is an opportunity. This is your day of opportunity. If you want to trust in Jesus today, please make that move. Thank you. Okay, what we'll do now is we'll pray. 
I'm going to say a prayer, and I, I would like the people who responded to say the prayer after me. But I want everybody in the room to say that prayer as well, so that they're not doing it privately or on their own. So I would like you all to, to say this prayer as well as we say it. So this is the prayer now. Okay. So please just say it after me. Father God, I thank you that you love me. And I apologize for my sin. And I turn away from the wrong things in my life. And I thank you that Jesus died on a cross for me. And I put my trust in him. And I believe in him as my savior. And I ask you to come into my life to make me new. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, if you made that move and, you'd, uh, and you, you want to be very definite about that, I'd like you to come and see me afterwards and just say, I, John, I prayed that prayer. Okay? So you could do that um, later on. Now, we haven't finished quite yet. <laughs> we've got a bit of time left. Because we've thought about the tent in the desert. We've thought about Jesus being the tent. By the way, I just say this. In John, can you just bring up that John chapter 1 verse again, please? Just for your interest. In John chapter 1, this is a very well-known verse. Is that right? You know, it's the climax of John chapter 1, the first 14 verses of John chapter 1. You know, the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was, was, was God, and, and so on. It goes on like that. And then this, this, is a, this is a crunch verse. It says, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I love John's Gospel, and I love that verse. But basically, you might be interesting to know that the word in the Greek for made his dwelling is camped. <laughs> it is tented. It's the same word as tent. It's the verb for tenting. Right? So he actually came and lived in a tent like ours when he lived on the earth. So that's a, that's a great verse. So, uh, in fact, those first chapters of the first verse of John's Gospel, you need to know those. Uh, in fact, I've, I've learned them to recite for various occasions. <laughs> but basically, they're absolutely great verses. So uh, that's that. But now we come to something else the last kind of tent, tabernacle, that we meet. And this is you. So if we look at the next verse, on there now, share, please. Next one. Next one. Next one. <laughs> ah, that's right. This is, this is one, one talking about temples, us being temples of the Holy Spirit. There are two verses from Paul. Uh, one is about being um, jointly temple of the Holy Spirit, all of us together. This is what this one's about. Don't you know that you, ourselves, you, you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. So basically, it's saying that together we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But that isn't the only use. In the next verse, 
we see that, sorry, it starts with a bit of a sort of, <laughs> not a very good idea for a Sunday morning. Anyway, there we are. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. That's worthwhile thinking with porn and all that kind of thing. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received your God from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. That price was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So you, your body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So you are a temple. In fact, I've come to learn that when I read in the Bible about temples, I always think, now this is also about me. Because this is about my body. Because my body is now the temple. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is where God dwells. And there, what, what, what we say about temples? They're a place of sacrifice and a place where God lives and where God is, and where you can meet God. Okay, so we've got a few um, verses we're going to look at. I haven't looked at this all the time. It's still here. Yes, okay. <laughs> there we go. Let's go down here. Um, so, what, so what I'd like you to do um, is stand up again, please. This is your time to stand again. And this time, we said before, this is my tent. This, this, this is now my portable temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So uh, we'll say it together. One, two, three. This is my portable temple of the Holy Spirit. And again, this is my portable temple of the Holy Spirit. You are all portable temples walking around Cambridge all week long. That's what you are. Okay? And uh, the thing is, are there offerings and sacrifices you can make? Well, there are. I've got a few here, which is it's a big subject. We could spend ages on this, but these are just a few things to see what sacrifices you could make and what offerings you could make. Now, you are... Um, but you need to think, what's your temple like? Is your temple holy? Are you honoring God with your temple, with your body? Who do you consider to be the owner of your body? Is it you? Or is it God? You were bought at a price. Is your temple empty? Is it an empty one? No God at the middle. Is your temple a marketplace? <laughs> On money and cash and materialism and Mark Spencer. <laughs> anyway, basically, all those things. And what's happening in your temple? And is it a place of offering and sacrifice? And is it a place where people can draw near to God? So here are a few offerings and sacrifices. Uh, we'll have the first one. Uh, spiritual sacrifices. You also, like living stones, are built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's the first one. Rather vague. Spiritual sacrifices. Next one is a bit more concrete. Romans 12.1. Our bodies, 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, this, this is the picture of a whole burnt offering. Remember the one that they brought that said everything? I bring everything to you, God. This is the whole thing. The whole works. All goes up. This is what this one is. This is the whole burnt offering. I bring my body as an offering to you. Our prayers. Next one. This is Cornelius. Remember Cornelius saw an angel? Cornelius stared him. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Cornelius had been a prayerful man. And because he'd been a prayerful man, his prayers had come up before God like a memorial offering to God. And also his gifts to the poor, which is the next one, our substance. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. This is your substance. This is giving of your, what you've got to God, giving your tithe to the church, giving to missions, giving to the poor, whatever you, all the giving. Giving of yourself to God is what it's about. There's a lovely one in Hebrews 13, 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. I was thinking about this. We were worshipping God this morning. Nick was leading that song. That we're worshipping God and we're thinking we're offering a sacrifice of praise to God. And the last one is our love. Walk in the way of love, just as Christ gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus was, gave himself in love as a sacrifice, and we need to give ourselves in love as a sacrifice. And the last point is really, is a place to draw near to God. If someone asked you this question, where can I find God in Cambridge? And you got a map, a Google map, and you put some pins on it and said, right, you know, try King's College Chapel, feel nice in there, or uh, King's Church, try that one, or uh, Great St. Mary's, middle of town, nice tower there. (laughs) Uh, Where would you put the pins on the map to find God? Where would you put them? (laughs) in you the pin is in you the pins will be all the Christians, spirit filled Christians in Cambridge the pins will be in them they are access points to God right, that's what you are you're, you're an access point to God like, and, and you know you, you, do you have a pillar of cloud, <laughs> a pillar of fire over the top of you, but it should be like that almost that you are a person carrying the presence of God. And that's where you meet God. You carry the information and the presence of God that can bring salvation to your fellow human beings. You have it. You have, you have that, that information. And you have the presence of God. And that is your job, to bring that. Remember that your portable temples are the Holy Spirit. I've got a couple of verses here. Uh, 1 Peter 3.15 In your hearts revere Christ as Lord. 
And always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Remember, as you go around your daily work, as you go to Marks and Spencer's, <laughs> wherever you go, remember that you are the access point for other people to God. And this might be their time, their moment, because they meet you. And you can be that point where they can meet God. And this is a lovely verse because it talks about, you know, do with gentleness and respect. This is not a thrusting down people's throats, you know. It isn't like that. It's, 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 it's being kind to people and loving people and caring people and giving people a smile, you know, and all those kind of things. The ways that we can reflect the goodness of God. And uh, 2 Corinthians 5.18. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's our message. Say, be reconciled to God, be reconciled to God. That's our message. And this verse is fantastic because it's got all the reconciliations all over the place. It? It's got God reconciling the world to himself, us reconciled to God, and us being ministers to bring reconciliation of people to God. It, it's fantastic. So basically, that is our job. So you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and your job is to be a living sacrifice and to be the contact point with God. Thank you for listening and we trust that the Word of God has inspired you today. For further information about King's Church or to access our large archive of other recordings, go to www.kingscambridge.org. If you're listening on iTunes, we would love you to leave us some feedback. God bless and goodbye.